Hello, my name is Tom Langson, and welcome to this episode of the Telltales Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Cara North, a learning designer from Ohio State University. She kindly agreed to share her experience of working with academics, e-assessment, and producing content for education. I started by asking her what she felt was her role as a learning designer in a U.S. higher education environment. Great question. To me, a learning designer is someone that cares about what the impact is on the end user. They design with not only the end in mind, but the person that is taking the curriculum or the learner, if you will, in the absolute center of the design. And I think that a lot of times bad curriculum doesn't necessarily do that. When I think of bad curriculum and bad design, I think of what I call the fire hose of knowledge. And we've all been there. We've been in situations where it's way too much. And it's not to say that the instructor or the designer wasn't passionate about the content or whatever it is, but it's just way too much for the person to handle and understand and actually apply to be better in whatever their academic program is, professional development, whatever the case may be. So to me, a learning designer is somebody that really is intentional when they're thinking about the the big picture. And they're also somebody that isn't afraid to stand up for what's right in, in learning design. So this person is not an order taker. This person is an expert in their field because they're constantly improving themselves. And to me, that's what that's what a good learning designer looks like. With Cara now focusing on how to produce good learning materials, I wondered how she first got into being a learning designer. I graduated undergrad in the um, U.S. recession, so it was very difficult to find a job when I graduated undergrad. And I got my degree actually in journalism and couldn't find a full-time job, so I ended up moving back home, and I'm from a very small place in Kentucky, and couldn't find a job, and then I saw that there was job openings in a call center, and did not want to work there, but I believe that any amount of money is better than zero dollars an hour. Went to work in this call center, and I hated it, (laughs) but after being there for a couple months, they promoted me to call center quality analyst, which means I got to listen to the calls that the telemarketers were making, but then one little small snippet of my job is I got to help train new, new people on the phone. And with that, I really enjoyed it. And that's when something kind of clicked with me. And I just knew that this is something that I wanted to do. So I worked there a little bit longer until I came across another call center nearby called Amazon. You may have heard of it. And (laughs) I went over to Amazon. I started working in the Kindle department and I loved it. And one day I had this conversation with my manager. I noticed a lot of the training material just wasn't what we needed. And I said, who makes this stuff? And he said, oh, it's an instructional design team. And they're actually looking for an opening. I don't know if you would be interested in it, but you should probably apply. It's like, okay. So I applied and I got it. So I became an instructional designer at Amazon before I even really knew what what it was. And I absolutely loved it. I had a great experience there. 
I was able to do stuff in the learning management system. At the time, we actually had Moodle at Amazon, if you can believe that. Back back in the day, like 2009 is when I'm talking. And I learned a lot, was very well supported. And I did miss kind of that face-to-face interaction because I really do like training and instructor-led. So in the evening, I started working for an adult education center that taught basic work-ready skills, helped adults with their resumes, basically helped people get back on their feet. And I absolutely love that, too, because that was really powerful work to see people kind of at their worst. They come in and be able to help them get a job. That was that was really meaningful to me, and I learned a lot from that experience as well. But about five years ago, I fell in love with a boy in a different state, and we got to talking, and I ended up moving up here to the Columbus, Ohio area, and that's when I got a job at the university that I work at, the Ohio State University, and I've been here, I'll be here for five years in June, and it's been really fun, and one thing that I love about working at a university is I can really take lifelong learning to the next level. And that was one thing I'll never forget in my interview. They said, do you have any questions for us? And I said, you know, what What do the benefits package look like here? And they said, well, quite frankly, you have free tuition on day one. And as soon as they said that, this is where I wanted to work. So in my tenure here, I have gotten another master's degree and I'm working on my PhD in educational studies with the emphasis in learning technology. So I love it here. I do think it's completely different, higher ed versus corporate. Um, that's a whole nother conversation for another day, but I'm happy to talk about that at that length with, with whoever wants to talk about it. But I, I do find it fascinating that we do the same kind of work in corporate and higher ed, but the approaches and the barriers are are so different and I just I just think it's absolutely fascinating but so I have experience in both corporate and higher ed and um, continuing to grow I mean if you're not growing every day um, you're really missing out and I think that the more you put yourself out there the more you talk to people the more you understand that you don't know everything and the more you understand that it, it needs to be a conversation and that's that's what I love about Twitter it's what I love about the internet and learning development in general, I found most people are just super kind in this field and they really want to help each other grow and get better. And and that's what it's all about. And when we all help each other grow, I think that that helps us have a better reputation of what we do. And obviously it helps, I think, the stakeholders and the learners. So that that's what it's all about. So for you personally, do you have a sort of subject that you work with or are you helping academics from a range of subjects? Well, <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. My particular role here at the university, I don't touch a lot of academic stuff. I do more of the professional development side of the house for staff and faculty and also folks all across the state of Ohio and Basically, right now, um, for the past year, I have actually been focused on assessment. So the team that I work on uh, provides assessment, professional development for staff, faculty, and then again, people all across Ohio. With Cara's recent work being in e-assessment, I asked how she was finding the engagement and uptake of it. Really, the the big things that we push are we find that a lot of 
staff, faculty, and even, you know, again, teachers, I'm talking in primary school, K through 12 teachers across the state of Ohio, they don't have a very high assessment literacy. And I don't necessarily think that that's their fault. When you think of assessment, it's not really the most exciting topic. <laughs> a lot of times people don't want to think about tests or assessments because they have anxiety about them. They're um, afraid of you know, just, just going through the whole process. What we have been focusing on here and something that's very near and dear to me is using assessment not as a tool for punishment, but using assessment to really see not only where the faculty member is in their course development, but also where is the learner? Where's the student in all of this? And a good assessment can really give a snapshot of what that person is going through at that particular time. Assessments should not focus on a student's deduction skills. And time and time again, we've seen a lot of assessments written more about they need to figure out what the correct answer is by process of elimination, whereas that's not really a knowledge check. And another thing that we try to focus on in our professional development is making sure that the assessment aligns to what is being taught in the course. A lot of the courses have course outlines on what is expected to be taught in that particular course. Does the assessment stack up to that? Is the assessment actually gauging that student's knowledge and what they are doing in that particular course? And more importantly, that knowledge that they're getting in that course, are they able to apply it to a higher level course? And right now, the big push, believe it or not, is we're focusing a lot on multiple choice tests. And the reason for multiple choice tests is because usually when you see a bad assessment, it's probably a multiple choice test. And a lot of that has to do with the way that they're written. And a lot of it has to do with just the, the thought and intention behind it. A lot of times the students can guess and a badly written assessment, a good test taker can kill it every single time. So just again, encouraging faculty, staff, anybody that works with assessment to really think about using that opportunity as an absolute learning bridge, not just as a giveaway, not for compliance, not just a knowledge check to make sure that they're reading the e-learning, but actually get something out of the course and be able to apply that knowledge to the next step. That, that's the important piece. As Kara is the designer of e-assessment and someone that helps academics enhance their own content, I wanted to know how she balanced the perception that multiple choice can be seen as too easy to get right when badly designed and how she implements good assessment design across school and higher educational environments. Um, here in the state of Ohio, we help provide professional development for career technical educators. And these are the folks that teach family consumer sciences, agriculture, welding, etc. And what we found for those particular teachers is a lot of them are experts in their field and then they came backwards into teaching. So they may have worked on a job site for five to 10 years and then found themselves in a career technical classroom. That, those are the folks that have no clue <laughs> about assessment at all because, again, they didn't really come through through a traditional educational path. But with that being said, we also found that even if you go to school and college to become a teacher, you're lucky if you have one assessment course, period. So I, I just find that absolutely interesting because so much pressure, at least in American culture, is placed on test scores and 
you know, what your grades are in a class. And we're doing a disservice to the students by making poor, poor um, assessments for them. So the dichotomy there is K through 12, again, we focus on the multiple choice, and then we also focus on the multiple choice professional development for the college level. But another thing that we focus on, and I'm very fortunate um, to have this, my actual boss here at Ohio State is a psychometrician. And a psychometrician is just a fancy way of saying he breaks data down from tests. He cares about item analysis, so each individual test question, he's interested in the percentage of folks that got it right, the percentage of folks that got it wrong, and then also analyzing each potential answer. And through him, I've learned a lot about performance tests. And performance tests are, again, making sure that they can do what it is that they need to do. And we found, especially I think in the College of Nursing, and I I have a colleague over there that's an instructional designer, that that lends itself to checklist performance tests a little bit more than maybe like an English class. So making sure that the type of assessment is in line with what the kind of work or knowledge is, is also very important. And again, you you can have multiple choice tests in multiple courses for sure, but that might not be the best application of, a, of an assessment if it's something that you have like that are higher stakes or something dealing with health and safety, that, that might not be the best way to assess a, a student's knowledge. So just approaching it with the sense of there's not just one right way to do a test, there's multiple kinds of ways to build an assessment. I think that that's a really important distinction and providing that support. So again, nobody is tripped up to me, the worst thing is somebody taking a test and feeling like they didn't know it, not because they didn't know the content, but because they were tripped up on a word or a way a question was written. I, I don't think that that's fair. So I, uh, I'm pretty proud that I'm able to work in this space. And I don't know how many students I've kind of saved from bad assessments, if you want to put it that way. But I, I think it's really important work. And the more that we can push out the importance of assessment and ways to, I mean, even just small changes to, to make it better. I mean, that's a win-win for everybody. So what do you find works well to engage the academics in e-assessment when you're designing something? What, what kind of gets them interested and engaged with what you're doing? <laughs> is this a trick question? Uh, <laughs> um, it's really difficult to engage academics. And I actually had this conversation the other day with a colleague of mine. I think it's because, especially at a place like the Ohio State University, we are focused a lot on research. And a big chunk of the faculty's job duties is research. And I've had professors here, because I'm also a PhD student, that have basically said, you know, I care more about research than teaching. And until something is put in to their performance reviews or they have some kind of stake on that, I, I don't really see them being engaged in making making their teaching better. And and I do think that that's kind of a sad fact, but unfortunately it's reality because at the end of the day, if the performance standard that you're being held accountable for every year is how many times you have been published in a peer review journal and how much funding have you received in a year, you're not really going to care that much about it. So 
I think it's a culture change and I don't really know how to go about that. But I will say that people that have went through it have emailed us and said, hey, that was actually kind of fun. That wasn't as bad as we thought it was. And we learned a lot about assessment in general, but also how to write assessments that align better to what we need to be teaching. So we get good feedback from folks that go through it, but it's just difficult to entice them to go through it. So um, I think that's just an ongoing process. And I think that's something that all learning designers deal with um, across the world is that faculty engagement piece. Because in my experience, you have two kind of faculty. One that is like, okay, learning designer, please help me. <laughs> I need a lot of help building this out. Or you have the ones like learning designer, it won't have anything to do with you. This is my content. This is my class. This is everything is mine, mine, mine. I don't need you to help me go away. And I don't know if there's like an in-between there, but um, just, just what I've dealt with here, those are kind of the two personalities that, that pop up. So with the problem of some academics and educators having a very self-focused mindset, I asked Kara if having a completed project and examples helped bridge that gap into engaging with her and the process. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's so important to have working examples of what what you've built because, again, I found that the instructor that is super willing to have that learning designer work with them, I always say they suffer from shiny syndrome, meaning that they want the hippest, coolest technology, even if it's not necessarily a fit for that particular class that they're doing. They want an AR something or they want something with, um, you know, VR or what have you. They want something because they've seen it somewhere else or they'll go read um, Inside Higher Ed. And I don't know if that's big in the UK, but here it's almost like a Bible. <laughs> a lot of A lot of people read that and they will read what other institutions are doing and they immediately expect the exact same thing here. And that's the biggest hurdle that I think any learning designer has is pushing back and saying, you know, you're the content expert, but I'm the process expert. And being that process expert, one thing that I have to do is I have to evaluate the technology and I really have to make a good conscious decision. Is this a good fit for your particular course? And Building that backbone is very difficult, especially if you're a new learning designer, because the last thing you want to do is ruffle this person's feathers when you know there's other people that don't even want to have anything to do with you. But this person wants to have something to do with you, but you don't want to disappoint them because, again, they usually have good energy, good vibes. So I think that a couple ways that you can kind of show them what is in your arsenal and some examples. I think showing snippets of storyboards are always a good choice. Uh, me personally, there is a template that Jackie Van Nice did, and I'm happy to share it with you if you do show notes so people can see it. But it, it's, it's basically just a PowerPoint template. It has where you can put a uh, picture in of what you're uh, thinking. Um, you can put in like the voiceover, um, the animations, and then any notes that, that you have. And I found that very valuable because I'll send a storyboard like that to, you know, different SMEs and faculty and, and they can put their notes in of what they what they think should change or, or what they're thinking. And it's helpful for them to kind of see where your hat is. Um, 
Another thing, again, I think that you should also focus on being tool agnostic. And what I mean by that is if there's a way that you can have something built in like two of the major authoring tools or something that you may just build in a WordPress site, I mean, show them, show them depth and range. I think that that's super important too, because again, I've seen faculty that really embrace um, websites because the university here owns, they have um, their own brand of WordPress that that's free and open for anybody to use. And, and some faculty really use that to, to their advantage. And that's a great way to, to have videos and that kind of stuff in there. And um, again, you, you just kind of need to align it to what they're thinking, but sometimes they don't know what they don't know and they, they need to see what the capabilities are and they need to see the options before they make a decision. And it should be a partnership. But again, I, I have seen way too many instructors want everything in the kitchen sink. So being able to set those expectations early and having some kind of a communication plan and check-in, I think that that's also key as well. Um, some are very kind of hands-off. They don't want to be bothered until you got a working prototype, but some want to be involved in every step of the process. So you need to be malleable and be able to go between those two faculty members types and make sure that their needs are met. Because I've also found that if you have a very successful partnership with a faculty member, they're going to tell everybody and they're going to tell everybody how great you did. And then you'll see everybody wants to work with you. But conversely, if they have a poor experience with you, that'll spread even quicker. <laughs> so it's very important to, to not only keep egos in check and make sure that everybody is happy, but then also um, do a good job. And, and even if you have that, that kind of, um, even if you have those kinds of disagreements with faculty, you need to be able to stay in your ground and, and, you know, keep, keep doing what you're doing. And like I say, stay in your lane. I think that's really important. With the potential for academics wanting to bring large PDF and text heavy resources to Cara, I asked her what her approach to tempering expectations was when she'd have to analyze and scale down the original materials. That that's a very tough tough situation and and again uh the way that I like to tackle it is I always like to ask the question what from this chapter this module if a student has three takeaways what are the three takeaways that you want them to have from this and they'll list them out well I want them to be able to know this and I want them to be able to write this and etc and then that's when you make the call okay well I want to focus the module or I want to focus the the interaction around these three and are you okay not to say that this isn't important but are you okay with having this as ancillary material are you okay with if this is something they want to dive a little bit deeper into that they can go to your website and read it are you okay with um, them being able to kind of do that on their own terms is this completely necessary in order to get these three things accomplished and a lot of times they'll be like well no, not really. Um, I could probably do it this way or I could probably do that. But again, you still have those faculty members. And I'm not saying this to be nasty because I, I realize that their work is very important to them. And we all have pride of ownership of our work. And 
I do think that that it's important to acknowledge that, but it, it is a fine line, but really getting them to focus on what are the takeaways that these students need, and then is this absolutely necessary to get them to the end point? I found that that helps me a lot. Moving on from this, I decided to find out what Kara had enjoyed working on the most and had found the most rewarding element of her role. Uh, recently, it was actually early, well, it was last year, sorry, I helped develop this this module. And again, I, I can share it with you because nothing that we do is necessarily private. But one thing that we did is we have developed kind of like a style guide or rule book for assessment and how to create a quality multiple choice test item. And this was done before I, I came over here and it was this booklet that had all these rules and guidelines and it was good stuff. But when we found that if people came over here or we were out in the field and we shared it, I mean, they would look at it, but I doubt anybody would refer to it or look at it again. And one thing I was thinking about is if I got this and I was a faculty member, I was a teacher, would I look at it? And I was honest with myself. I said, no, I probably wouldn't look at it because I don't want, the last thing I want to do is, I, the last thing I want to do is read a book of rules about assessment, right? <laughs> I don't think it's on anybody's bucket list. And I got to thinking, well, what what if they already know some of this? And what what would that look like? So I had the idea, how about we write a really bad test and see how they perform? It's like, okay, that, so that sounds like a good idea. Now, how am I going to do it? Because the problem is, what subject matter do you do something to test somebody on that somebody wouldn't know? And that's where I kind of struggled and I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And then I had the idea to go to Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> go to Ripley's Believe It or Not, uh, pull out some crazy facts and history and write bad test questions and test them to see if they understand the rules and regulations of what we propose of good assessment. So we worked on it, we put it together. I did all the curriculum part. I did uh, a, a big part of the development and then I handed it off to another instructional designer here who took it over the top. So his, his little change to it is we made it like a cheesy game show. And we had a, uh, we made our storyline player look like a TV and we called it multiple choice mayhem. And he did an excellent job of uh, voiceovering that and making it more believable and cheesy. And I'm telling you, every time that we go somewhere or talk about that, we get a, a lot of response of people. Oh my gosh, I took that and that was so much fun. Like I really liked going through that because now I feel like I understand assessment a little bit better. And it wasn't as painful because again, it was something that they didn't know the subject matter and some of the rules that we push out. Like for example, uh, giving cues in the question. And I think one our first question is, it's a name of somebody has the title of being a the coolest dad in the world in the bag. He's known for his viral artwork on. And then we had, I think, school buses, gymnasiums, sandwich bags, and something else. But the correct answer is sandwich bag because it had bag in the question. And we find a lot of times when people are writing these 
these uh, assessment questions, they think they're almost like on Jeopardy or something or some trivia show where they want to give students clues on what the correct answer is. And that's not necessarily the correct way to do it because then again, you are testing their deduction skills and their logic skills. You're not testing the content knowledge. And we've, we've really had a fun time with it. And again, I'll share that with you and you can put that in the show notes as well. People can go through it and play, but that, that was probably one of my favorite projects that I did just because we got so much feedback from people saying that they loved it and they were able to share it with others. So that, that really means a lot. From the project Kara had worked on, she mentioned that they use a piece of software called Articulate Storyline. Now that helps create interactive packages and resources, and I wanted to know how many of their projects are created using such technical programs. Good question. Uh, for our purposes, a lot of our stuff we do build in Storyline. I also work a lot in video, so I use Camtasia a lot. That's the other product that I use a lot. Um, the problem is... If we put something into the learning management system with Storyline or Camtasia, that is something that obviously the faculty member will have difficulty keeping up with. So these are great examples on why it's so important to have some kind of a plan to talk about the maintenance of a particular module or video. Now, for video, I find that it's so much easier to just rebuild a video because once you've worked on video for a while, you can hammer out a good looking video pretty quickly, I found, especially if you keep your assets and, and all of that. But um, yeah, for the most part, we work in Storyline. We have figured out a way here where I work at to put in the closed caption. And this was before even the Articulate Storyline 360 came out. We had like a hotspot, and you can see it on this game that I'm going to share with you, where uh, the closed captionings will be on and off depending on what what you want. But um, yeah, I mean, w those are kind of our main two tools. But again, I'm always about trying to make the best solution for the individual client. Um, I actually have been playing with for um, a teacher, and we've been talking about it for a while, uh, building a choose your own adventure on Twitter. And I've seen it done a couple of times. So that's something that I'm kind of sandboxing right now. But what does that look like? And a build your own adventure. And when you do that, can you bring other people that's not even in the class involved in it? So Again, just solutions that fit the needs for the particular customer is important, but the main bread and butter is Storyline and Camtasia, at least for me. While some people are using Storyline within the University of Portsmouth, we're focusing on the development of the tools within Moodle and hopefully empowering academics to see the benefits in the range of tools that it can provide. I wondered if Cara's academics had the same focus for creating materials within their virtual learning environment, sometimes referred to as an LMS. We do have a department here at Ohio State called the Office of Distance Education and E-Learning. And those are the folks that set the instructors up with their shells in their in the LMS. And our LMSs, we use Canvas, but I am familiar with Moodle. I've used that before in the past. But um, mostly on, on the burden of the instructor, they have access to what's called MediaSite. And that's a tool where they can do lecture capture and can also build on like a dynamic whiteboard or um, 
you know, they, they can do a bunch of stuff with that particular tool. And I do think that there are actually technologists that will come and assist them if they need help with it. But as far as like the e-learning authoring tool and building stuff in the learning management system, they can do a little bit of that with in the in the LMS. But I think most of the privileges are kind of stripped down for that. And, and if they really want like a video or something like that, then, you know, they can reach out to the instructional design teams. And to finish up with, if you could have one bit of advice for a, a kind of a new academic coming into building digital distance learning and education resources, what would your kind of tip be for them? I think it's a tip that I give everyone. We're born with two ears and one mouth for a reason. I think it's so important to just pause and listen. The The pause is a very powerful thing that a lot of people don't take advantage of. And just listening to someone's perspective or listening to someone's process, you can always get some kind of a takeaway from it. And um, especially in academics, I, I know that they're under a lot of pressure to publish and research and bring money in. But they need to understand that there's a team of people that are here to support them. Um, again, if a student is successful in a course or if a student is able to apply something and leave this university and make an impact on the world, that's a feather in all of our hats. That's a success for the instructor. That's a success for the instructional designer. We all win. And just kind of understanding where they are in the academic ecosystem, I think is super important. And just just knowing that people are here to support them. And you work at a university because you care about learning. I mean, period. You, you don't work at a university for the money, that's for sure. But you work because you really care about the greater good and shaping society. And I think that's super powerful. And I'm very proud to have one little nugget of that in, in what I do every day. Perfect. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So please do check out telltales.port.ac.uk and follow us on Twitter at TellPortsmouth. You can subscribe to this podcast at iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. The music for this episode is called Nowhere Land by Kevin McLeod and all copyright information can be found within our show notes.